Week number one, we talked about the benefits of submission. Week number two, last week, I talked about submission in the church, and I've asked Chris to speak on the topic of, of training our children on how to submit and obey uh, next weekend. I'm really looking forward to that message, and because we've got to nip this thing in the bud when, when they're young, correct? We've got to get it when it's young, and they're living increasingly in a society that is, and a culture that is lawless. There's lawlessness here, and, uh, and it's leading towards anarchy, and we need, to, we need to listen to what God is saying. We need to teach our young people that. This week, someone asked me, how do you respond to people who say, I'll sin, and then ask forgiveness afterwards? Have you ever had somebody say that to you? particularly when you're warning them. I'll sin, and then I'll simply ask forgiveness later. Perhaps you've even been tempted by that. I have, by that thought. Why not? Grace is cheap, it's free, and I'm a Mennonite. (laughs) So I'll just sin and ask forgiveness, and that's it. And then I get the best of both worlds. Now, can you imagine a groom on his wedding night holding the following conversation with his bride. Honey, I love you so much, and I'm eager to spend my life with you, but I need to work out a few details. After we're married, how far can I go with, the other, with other women? Can I sleep with them? Kiss them? You don't mind a few affairs now and then, do you? I know it might hurt you, but just think of all the opportunities you'll have to forgive me after I betray you. You say, that's bizarre. It is bizarre, and yet this is precisely what many have done with God. Thanks for saving me. Thanks for the benefits. Thanks for the relationship. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to get back in bed with the world. And hence, in the Western church, divorce and sexual sin rates, as an example, are just as high in the church as in the world. The church has lost her saltiness and her moral authority through rebellion, a lack of submission to her Lord. Church, would you agree with this? Am I the only one who thinks this? Or would you, would you sort of agree with what you've just heard? Yeah, that's what I heard in all, uh, on all four services. Yeah, you're, you're dead on. This is the way it is. And so the result is that the Western church has become anemic and powerless to transform her culture. How have we come to this? Well, I believe there are some lies that we've been listening to uh, from Satan, our adversary, and we need to quit and we need to expose those lies for what they are. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk about the lies that lead to rebellion, and we're going to talk about three. The first one we'll tackle very quickly, and then we'll move on to the other two. And here's lie number one. Lie number one says, God does not have my best interests at heart. In other words, God is not good. He doesn't really have my best interests at heart. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the snake was the most cunning animal. What kind of animal? Cunning. He's been at this for a long time, thousands of years. None of us can outwit him. The snake asked the woman, Did God really tell you not to eat fruit from any tree in the garden? Now, let's get this in context. We move back and we discover that God said, 
to Adam and Eve. He said, you can eat freely from every tree in the garden. Oh, except that one. But every tree you can have. That's what a good God I am. Every tree you can eat from. They're going, wow, that is so amazing. We don't even care about that one. You gave us all the rest. Thank you very much. Along comes the cunning. What, what kind of animal was he? Cunning. Along comes this cunning tempter in the form of a serpent. And he says, and he twists it now. And he says, God, did God really tell you not to eat fruit from any tree in the garden? That's not what he said. And suddenly they're going, wait a minute. And he's putting the focus on the tree that they're not supposed to eat of and that God's saying no. And they're saying, that's right. God isn't good. I wonder, maybe he doesn't have my best interests at heart. I think you're right. And, uh, and, and, and God, but God, we know it was actually being very good. We often say that here. God is what? All the? Yeah, God is good all the time. Now we say that. But till the tempter comes and tells us otherwise. In this particular case, I mean, some, somewhere lurking in the back of your mind, you're thinking, yeah, why did God put that one tree there? I mean, why didn't he just say, all of them, be done? Maybe he's good, but he's not totally good. He's trying to set me up. He's trying to set me up to trip me. Was he being good or was he not being good? Well, here's, here's an answer. Whether we understand the answer or not, now I'm going to give you an answer, and then you're going to discover and you say, oh yeah, God was being good. But the point is, we don't always understand. Why did God put the tree there? He put it there so they would have a legitimate choice not to obey Him. And the reason is, choice is the soil in which love and relationship grow. Amen? You can't have love, you can't have relationship if you don't have choice, then if, if there's no choice, then we're nothing but uh, energizer bunnies that are wound up. And we go, <laughs> and we're programmed to hug. Is that love? Help me. Is that love? No, that's not love. Who would want that in a marriage? We want something where the person chooses us. So God puts a choice. Do you choose me with all these trees or do you choose to disobey me and you don't really love me? So in doing that, he introduced this thing of love and relationship. Is he a good God or is he a, not a good God? He's a good God, obviously, having done that. Now, when God made other restrictions, and he has other restrictions, he was being good then too, whether you, whether you know why he's saying it or not. That's not the issue. You and I are to, to trust him. When a parent warns a small child to keep off the street or restricts a child's candy sugar intake for the day or takes the child to a doctor for an immunization needle and the little child looks at her parent as though they've just betrayed them. They can't believe that the parent would let this person in a white coat take a needle that long <laughs> and stick it in there and try to kill them. The child doesn't realize that the parent's hurting inside and the parent knows they think that I'm betraying them, but the truth of the matter is I care about them deeply. I love them. I have their best interests at heart. Amen? And so does God. And so does God. 
Well, seeing you get this point really well, I'm going to move on to lie number two. Lie number two, and by the way, it's because of that, that lie, when we, when we, when we believe that lie of the enemy, that causes us to move in the direction of rebellion and, uh, towards God. Here's lie number two that we listen to. There are no consequences for sin. Now, if I were to ask you, are there consequences for sin, you would answer as any good church would. Very good theological answer. And yet we continually do it. Because the enemy knows that it's not what's in our head and about what's in our heart. And we still think we can get away without consequences. The enemy tried it with Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3 says, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of, uh, of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will not surely die. God had just said in the verses before, In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge, that one, in the day that you eat of that one, you will surely what? And the enemy turns around and says, you will not surely die. Wait a minute. God says one thing, the enemy says another, and now we have a choice. Do we believe God or do we believe the enemy? And, and the history of our world and looking at the results around us tell us that we're listening to him a lot, wouldn't you say? There's no consequences. We can, we can get away with, you know, some people face consequences, but we won't. So not only did Satan assure the couple that there would be no negative consequences, he also went on to say, actually, there'd be some good that would come out of it. He said, uh, God actually knows. He's not telling you this because he's not a very good God. But he actually knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will actually be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Really? You mean there's good, there's, there's good that can come out of, my, out of rebelling against God? Yes, yes, yes. You didn't know that? No, I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. So there are negative consequences for disobedience and rebellion. Always. How many times? Always. Not, not sometimes, not, not many times, not once in a while. There are always negative consequences for disobedience and rebellion. Well, let's look at several kinds of negative consequences. And the first one is God's laws have built-in consequences for disobedience. If you defy the law of gravity, for example, by stepping off a 10-story building, you will certainly experience the consequences of disobeying that law, wouldn't you? Most of the time. Sometimes. Or what? Always. But God not only has natural laws, He has spiritual laws. And disobedience or rebellion against those laws always has consequences. In Galatians 6, God said, don't be deceived by him. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. In some ways, the Bible is like an owner's manual. It's more than that, but it, in some ways it is like that. And if my owner's manual, my automobile owner's manual, tells me to get my brakes checked after so many kilometers, and I ignore it, 
How many of you have even read your owner's manuals? You're supposed to be. And I found there's a warning in there. It says, after so many kilometers, you're supposed to get them checked. And not only that, apparently there's a system in the bricks that if you wear them down far enough, they will squeal really loud. That squealing you're hearing is a warning. You're, not suppo- you're supposed to get your brakes checked. It's a warning. At some point, they will fail, and I will be involved in some mishap that will at the very least cost me a great deal in repairs, maybe even my own life. True? Absolutely. Absolutely. But there was a warning. Now I want to make a warning. Young people, listen to me. You think that you can get involved in sexual relationships outside of marriage without any consequences. Listen to me and listen carefully. You can't. I had a young adult plead with me between these two services who, has, who got married and is making the thing work and she said to me, tell them, pastor, tell them. Go back and tell them again and tell the 10-year-olds and the 11-year-olds. Warn them. It's not worth it. I'm haunted by the memories of the, of the rebellion of my past. And it's affecting my marriage. And we have to work through it. I, I've had, uh, uh, in fact, I had a couple between the services come to me. And uh, I've had a number of couples in this church. And I really commend people like this woman who said this. I commend these couples because they said, Pastor... Warn them about divorce. Warn them. And I've had at least three couples, I can think of three couples in my head right now who have told me this, who have come to me and said, we are remarried, we've been divorced, remarried, and we're making the best of it. We've, we've committed our life to Christ. We've asked Him for forgiveness where we've been involved. In some cases, they had nothing to do with it. And, but just tell them, Pastor, that it's not what it seems it, brings, it complicates everything with the family. And uh, some of the young uh, l- little kids, for example, um, uh, when your little children are shuffled around from one parent to another, when they say to us uh, and to school teachers that their mommy or their daddy doesn't live with them anymore, do you think it's hurting somebody? Yeah. If they're teenagers, they may blame God for their hurt and turn from God. And if And if your spouse sinned against you like this, you know what it's like to bear the consequences of another person's sin. So uh, when when we're involved in doing things, there there are always consequences. Or you lose your job because of some addiction, even if you repent. Or you lose your health or die prematurely because you willfully disregarded and would not submit to the government highway laws. And the saddest part is that our con- the consequences aren't always just internal ones that affect us. They affect other people. And that's so sad. That's the saddest part. Amen? Now here's what I, wanna, uh, here's what I really want to get at. Right now, some of us may be feeling a little smug, kind of happy. I haven't committed the big ones. Well, hallelujah. Good for you. Adam and Eve didn't suffer terrible consequences for murder, adultery, lying, or drug use. They simply ate a fruit. Call it an apple if you like. 
Are you kidding me? Let, let's, put this on, let's put this down to where we can really get it. Your mother says to you, bakes fresh cookies, or your wife does. Now let's leave it with mother. <laughs> then it's in my past and not in my present. And, your, and your, your mother bakes cookies, and she says to you as a youngster, you must not touch these cookies. And you go, that's not right. I mean, it isn't right to make cookies and put them on a counter. That in itself is a sin. That's what the devil would do. <laughs> right? <laughs> However, <laughs> she puts them in and says, don't take one cookie. Now, can you imagine? Think about this for a second. You decide you're going to take one cookie. How many people have done that? I've done it. Now, okay, I got you now. You'll wish you hadn't raised your hand. I had to raise mine too. I stole my mom's tarts all the time. And now think about this. You steal one cookie and the result of you eating that cookie results in one of your kids being murdered and the other one becoming a murderer. You say, come on, Ray. That's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. That? Yes. We think, oh, I'll just, I'll sin and then just pray a little prayer. Pray your little prayer all you want. It doesn't mean you're getting out of the consequences. You can pray and receive forgiveness, but it doesn't mean there won't be consequences. Amen? Just because you killed somebody, let's say you murdered somebody, and now you go before the judge and you say, Judge, I swear on the Bible. I, I said a little prayer. I prayed, and he forgave me. Doesn't mean you're not going to be spending the rest of your life in prison. There are consequences. There are always consequences. Now some, uh, you know, that's why we have these owner's manuals, and they, and they come in, in the owner's manuals. If you haven't seen it, you should read it. It's big capital letters. It says, warning. I have it in my owner's manual. Now, we should be going, you know, do we go look at that and say, warning, what a negative message. Heave the owner's manual away. <laughs> we don't do that. And this morning, God is saying, I have a warning for the church. And you can say, what a negative message. Somebody said to me, what a harsh message. Yeah, but it's a message of love. It's a love message. God is saying he loves you so much. He doesn't want you to listen to the lies that lead to rebellion and destruction that goes with it. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves me. So everything's a big deal. Here's a second kind of consequence for sin. God chastens us to correct us. When you won't submit, God uses three ways to bring us back. Number one is conviction. I'm so glad for that. He sent his Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus said in John, in the Gospel of John. But if a person repeatedly disobeys, and usually under conviction, a person will not necessarily face consequences. That may be early enough, just when you're thinking about doing the wrong thing. But if a person repeatedly disobeys, a veil of deception covers this, spirit, this person's spiritual eyes, so God sends a prophetic messenger. Finally, when the eyes are, are uh, the spiritual eyes and heart cannot see it, 
then he sends in a strong messenger to just say it straight. And that prophetic messenger can be a variety of people. Could you be your parent? And let me say to you, young people, listen to me. When your parent says, you come back home early, or the parent says, you ought not to be hanging around with those kids, you need to submit and not rebel, not because they don't have your best interests at heart, they love you to death. They don't want you to face the consequences. True? That's the way it is. In James it says, and it could be a pastor, could be a boss, could be a friend. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from what? Death and cover over a multitude of sins. Do you know what he's saying? If you, if, you, if you turn that sinner before he gets too far and you turn him back, you cover over a multitude of sins that could have happened. You got it in time. So it's a wonderful thing that he sends them. And if we still don't submit, God tries to reach us a third way through judgment. God longs to separate us from our disobedience. And often his judgment comes in the form of hardship or sickness or some other type of affliction. In Psalm 119, David said, Before I was afflicted, I went where? <laughs> I went astray, but now, after the affliction, I keep your word. That affliction, that chastening, those consequences from God, the spanking from God, those are good things. 1 Corinthians says, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged but when we are judged by God, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Aren't you glad he loves you that much? Because in the end, the world is going to be condemned and judged. And he's saying, I'm chastening you now to keep you from going down that road. That is a loving God. That is why many of you, it says, are weak and ill and some have died. Do you know that there are Christians who are facing much affliction. Some have even died prematurely because they just finally wouldn't listen and God was chastening them. That's what he does. I remember a friend, his name was Wayne, uh, back in my flying days, and uh, he told me the story a year after this event that I'm going to tell you. And uh, he had come to Christ through the church and he was growing and and then all at once something happened in him and he decided to, he was returning to the ways of the world and he was walking away from God. He was drifting and drifting. And uh, one day he was taking off from uh, Sioux Lookout Airport and he had just dropped off a bunch of pa passengers in the twin he was flying and the plane was empty. And he went down the runway and he was able to get off very quickly because he had no weight on board. No sooner was he off and a baggage compartment door on the long nose of the aircraft just flew open in his, in, you know, in his wind, windshield, flew back, and uh, it was because he had forgotten to lock it. In his, he didn't do his pre-checks. He was in a hurry, didn't do his pre-checks properly, missed it, and he took off. Now he's just off the runway, and he instinctively knew he had a problem, and he just pulled the throttles back, and he touched down on the runway, and it was raining, so it was wet, and he was going very fast by then, and he was closer to the end of the runway, and he just shot off to the end of the runway, and into a ravine, he landed up in a ravine, ripped the whole undercarriage and, and everything, the plane apart, and the plane came to rest in the ravine, and the first response out of his mouth was, he looked up, he told me, and he said, why God? 
And God said, you know why. And he said, that got me back on track. That's God's mercy and love, wouldn't you say? That's his mercy and love. Now, obviously, not all bad happens to us because God is chastening us. Uh, Job and Jesus, David, Joseph, Paul, we've talked about all these, are all examples of intense suffering in the midst of godliness. So you can't judge another, but you must judge who? Yourself. must judge ourselves. When I didn't tithe many years ago when I was in Bible college and had a little driving business going, driving school business, (coughs) excuse me, God withdrew his blessing on my business to such a point that I, that the business just drew, uh, dried up. And I was desperate. And I went down to the basement and I was praying by myself and I said, God, what is the matter? You know what I was doing? Judging myself. What is the matter? I, I put my arms out. God, what, what's going wrong? What are you doing? He said, it's you. You're the problem. You're stealing from me. You're not giving on what I'm, uh, I'm providing. I said, that's it? He said, that's it. I said, well, thank you for telling me. I ran upstairs. I said, I'm sorry. I ran upstairs and I said, honey, I know why, we're in, why our business is dried up. She said, why? I said, it's me. I'm the problem. I've sinned. She said, you what? I said, yeah, I'm stealing from God. He told me and I'm excited about it. <laughs> and I said, I know now what the problem is. This is no problem. We can fix this. We started giving, and immediately the calls started coming back, and we just filled right up, and business was fine. He'll get you wherever he wants to, right? He'll, and, and it's a good thing. Now, we've judged our, uh, through friends' ongoing illnesses, we judge ourselves all the time. We sit down with God and say, is there anything? We've learned that lesson. Now, here's what we need to judge. And four things are going to come up on the screen very quickly. You'll probably complain that I'm not spending enough time there, so you can copy them down, but I have to move quickly. Sometimes when we're in affliction, we need to be asking, God, is the reason I'm facing this affliction in order to bring glory to you through a miraculous intervention, as he did with Lazarus? Or we have to say, God, is the affliction that I'm suffering allowed by you to bring glory to to yourself by allowing me to be displayed in front of others, completely having to rely on you, and you receive glory. Is that why you're doing it? Here's a third possibility. Are you allowing the affliction or this problem in my life to build character in me, like David or Joseph? Or is it the fourth one? And this is the one we don't go to. We don't default to this one. Are you allowing this to bring correction in my life? Is that that the reason? It says Paul there, but ignore that word, uh, name Paul. I have an illustration for it. Numbers chapter 12 says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And it says, and the Lord heard it. You don't want to have that besides something you're doing. And the Lord saw it. That means it's not good what's about to happen. Miriam was the older sister of Moses who had cared for him while he was floating in a basket in the reeds. You'll recall that. She's a wonderful prophetess, a great prophetess. Aaron the older, uh, was uh, Moses' older brother. And they were people of position and power in Israel. And they criticized Moses for marrying someone from Cush, or many scholars believe that's Ethiopia. 
They thought he had made a sinful or bad decision because she was a foreigner. They may have been right, in fact. They reasoned that because God had used them too, and he had, that they were safe to speak out against authority. So God called them to account. Look what it says. And the anger of the Lord was kindled, and Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. She was sick. Sometimes it happens because of our sin, and God is chastising or correcting us. So how do we judge? We do that in listening prayer, and we won't get into that. There's one third one. I'll just mention it, and, we'll, and then we'll move on. There's probably more, but here's one third kind of consequence. We go back to enslavement. Sometimes God says, this individual that I'm dealing with constantly goes back, constantly goes back. I just rescue them, they go back to sin. I rescue them, they go back. I rescue them, they go back to sin. Finally, God says, fine, you like slavery so much, I'll take you back to your bondage. And some people wonder why they can't get free from enslavement and bondage, and it doesn't matter who prays over them and lays hands on them, and they can't get free, and it's not going to be an easy walk out of the park because God says, like he said to the Israelites, he said, I rescued you from your slavery, and you continually go back from me. Fine, I'll send you back into slavery. And he sent him back into slavery. See, sometimes God does that. All right, so there are consequences. Lie number three we've got to get on to. The last one. And here's the lie. To go to heaven, just believe and say a little prayer. That's it. And you can live happily ever after. Many have made the mistake of thinking of salvation as a one-time transaction that took place when they asked Jesus into their heart. I'm not mocking that. You'll see it in just a minute. They believe that, but they believe that after praying the sinner's prayer, they pretty much can live for themselves and wait to go to heaven. And this lie is killing the Western church today. It spawns rebellion rather than submission and obedience. People may as well live like they want. If in the end you simply go to heaven anyway because you believed a certain little doctrinal formula better than somebody else believed it, but other than that your lives are no different, then what's the motivation? Where's the fear of the Lord? There is none. Of course we affirm that praying to Jesus, to, to receive Jesus, is an important and wonderful first step. Amen? Amen. We'll read it out of Romans. Paul said, and to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is God speaking, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. Aren't you glad for that passage? I am. That's where my journey began. And that if, if you know Jesus and you're walking with him, that's where your journey began. But don't stop there. James chapter 2 says, you believe that there is one God? That's good. Even the demons believe that. Did you know that there, is, there are no non-believing demons? Have you ever thought of that? They all believe. There are foolish human beings that don't believe, but all demons believe. You know what they do? They shudder. Are they saved? No, they aren't. Are they on their way to heaven? Absolutely not. God says, you, you, through James, he said, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And then he goes on to talk about Abraham, and he says, Abraham believed 
But his belief led him to do something. And he talks there about how he was supposed to sacrifice his son, Isaac. He believed that God said it and that God would take care of the issue. And because of that, he acted on it. He didn't just go, I believe what you're saying, Lord. Thank you for telling me I'm supposed to sacrifice my son. I thank you. I believe this. Uh, do it? No, no, I'm not planning to do it. That would be ridiculous. But I believe it. That's bizarre. The belief leads to something else. And it was because he did that, it says it was credited to him for righteousness. In fact, it says, you see, uh, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is what? What's the word? Useless. You see that a person is justified by what he does, not by faith alone. Faith, and so here's two arguments James is making. Demons believe and it doesn't save them. And number two, faith without deeds is useless. Grace not only covers our sin, but grace gives us the, the ability not to live like that anymore. Amen? Uh, he gives us the desire and ability to do the will of God. That's what Philippians says. The desire and ability. You know the reason why I as a pastor uh, don't go and have a fling on my wife? It's not because I can't. It's because I don't want to. You, you know why I don't get messed up in drugs? It's not because I'm not a, I can't do it. And somebody's keeping me from doing it. It's because I don't want to. Amen? That's grace. And so the evidence that he has rescued me is that the things that I used to want to do and the things I did, I no longer want to do and do. <laughs> That's the evidence. So if a person is still acting over here and they said they prayed a little prayer, there's probably something wrong. That's what the writers say. Now, those that are theologians, they'll say, well, I'm, not, I'm more into Paul, not into James. I can understand why. Yeah. Though they're both inspired writers. Well, let's try a few other writers then. Writer to Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, says, In being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who, what? Obey him. Desire and do. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that means not everyone who prayed a little sinner's prayer. And I'm, I'm not belittling the sinner's prayer. We do it here. That's how I started my journal, journey. I'm just saying, that's not it. We'll enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus said these words, folks. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus said this. On that day, many, how many? Many, will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? They might even be charismatic. They're into the things of the Holy Spirit. I prophesied. I cast out demons in your name. Did mighty, uh, mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He's saying, be careful. Titus said, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to what? Ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. 
That's what grace is. It doesn't just cover your sin. So you don't want to just say, oh, I'll just sin, and then I'll just ask for forgiveness. No. You, when, when, you, when you get saved, you, you, re- you believe it, and then you turn to Christ, and you repent. You're turning to him, and you're walking in a new direction. You were walking in that direction. Now you're walking in this direction. And if you are walking in that direction, you have no assurance of your salvation. None. I'm not telling you when you crossed the line or didn't cross the line. I'm just saying you don't have assurance when you're going in that direction. Amen? Church, amen? That's what the Bible says. You say, well, somebody stomps out of here and says, work salvation. Don't you get caught up in human theological systems and cliches. Listen to God in his word. In John... John eight times repeats in Revelation that only those who overcome to the end of their lives will be saved. Here's a sample. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end. Not somebody who said a little prayer and then goes and lives like hell is going to heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not how you start, but how you finish. The start is important. But there's a life that continues. Even, now, back to this little debate, because there's some people who say, well, I'm more into Paul than into James, and Paul thinks it's just say a prayer and it's all good. Actually, I was saving this for the end. Now I'm going to pull out another verse and demonstrate that Paul actually agreed with all the other writers. Obviously he would, because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Right? But in Philippians 2, Paul himself says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and what? Trembling. Salvation is not only believing, it includes repentance. In fact, in Acts 3, Peter preached this. He said, Repent, therefore, and turn again. Repent. Turn around. Move in the other direction. And God gives you the grace to be able to do it, that your sins may be blotted out. Your belief causes you to repent or act by turning from your sinful ways to walk righteously in God's ways. Now, backsliders can return to the Lord through genuine repentance. James again says, my brothers, if anyone should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, that's the backslider. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. We looked at that passage. Evidently, if he does not repent, he will be lost. In fact, Scripture has a somber warning for those who once walked in God's ways who left and didn't return. You can, you can turn around and walk back the other way. You can. Young people, I'm... I'm imploring you. Listen to my words. Those of you that are from my generation, I implore you, listen to what God is saying to us. He's warning because he loves us so much. He's like the mother who warns her kids from going on the street. Don't do it. Isn't that a good God? A vindictive bad God would just say, I won't tell him. But he does. 
Second Peter says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question. Does that sound, doesn't that sound like a person who knows Jesus? Yes or no? Escape the pollutions through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Sounds like a saved person to me. They are again entangled in them, in the things of the world, overcome. Then the latter end, listen to this very carefully now, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. What he's saying here is these people returned to the world, they were overcome by its power, did not seek to restore their relationship to the Lord, and he says it would have been better for them that they had never known the truth in the first place. Now you say, how could that be? I'll tell you how it can be. Because he says their latter end will be worse than those who didn't know. It'll be worse for those who knew and then still turn from him than those who didn't know. Jude says, for whom the deepest darkness has been reserved forever. Jesus put it this way. That servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Not only can an unrepentant backslider lose in the end, Here's something chilling. They can actually lose it in this lifetime. And I'm going to address one, uh, one more lie here as we're getting close to the end. One more lie. People say, well, I'm just going to go and live my, you know, sow my oats. I'm just going to live for myself and for the world and everything else. And I don't care what it does to anybody else. I'm going to live for myself. But I'm planning to get converted, because I know the truth, on my deathbed. Number one, we don't know that we're going to have that kind of opportunity. True. Not everybody dies like that. But number two, what the scriptures teach is it's possible for you to cross the line before you get to your deathbed. It'll, it's possible for you to get to your deathbed and God will not work with you anymore. That's sobering. It's sobering. He says in 1 John 5, 16, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. Then he says there is a sin that leads to death. John says that if we see a brother who commits a sin that does not lead to death, we should pray for that person and, and, and receive him back. But the point is, there are, there are some that cross the line. In Jeremiah, the Old Testament, we see the same thing. God said to Jeremiah finally about his people, he said, Do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Then in chapter 15 he says, Even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. It's possible to cross the line. When we're walking, now you say, man, is there no assurance that I'm walking with God? Yes, there is. Absolutely there is. When we're walking with Him and the Spirit, the Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are His, He speaks to us and tells us that. He talked to me this morning again. He talked to me while I was sitting there during worship. 
listening. And I'm assured. So you can have present assurance, but you don't have future assurance if you drift away. If you keep on the way and keep on believing in Jesus, you are certain to arrive. That truth doesn't produce neurotic believers wondering whether they are saved or not, but it does produce serious Christians who don't play games with God, who don't backslide, and who don't neglect their faith and drift away. John chapter 15, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit if he remains in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Need I say more? Billy Graham was interviewed on television, and the interviewer asked Billy a question he had not been asked before. What will be your first thought when you get to heaven? Billy immediately replied, relief. Relief that I made it. Relief that I stayed with God and walked with Him. We don't choose Him one time and then let go. We choose Him for the rest of our days. Amen? And we can choose to walk away from Him. And sadly, many have. I got a very disturbing email last night uh, some amazing things happened. A few people got saved and a few people rededicated their life. In fact, one person came here, hadn't been to church in three years, and came for this message. I, and then I get this disturbing email of someone who was rescued from a life of sexual sin. And he grieved over friends of his who had once passionately loved God and had gone into the same sexual sin gay lifestyle, and today not only have walked away from God, they hate God, despise Him, and talk against Him. They used to be in a church. They used to love Him. They used to serve Him. You know what happens? You say, how is that possible? This is how it happens. You believe the lie, you believe one of His lies, and you think you can just sin and pray later for forgiveness. So you do it. So you commit your sin. And what you don't know is the moment you sin, Satan gets a foothold into your life. And when he does, he puts a veil over your spiritual eyes and ears. And when you used to be able to discern and hear the truth and understand it, you used to respond really well to the preaching of the word and that kind of stuff. You were excited. And you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and suddenly you're not. You don't actually get it. In fact, you go out of here, you, you're mad. You maybe talk about it in the vehicle. Ah, he's into this now. Whatever. There's a veil that's come over you. And so now, you make a choice to do a little bit more sinning, and a little bit more sinning, and a little bit more. And finally, you've walked way down the path, and you cross some line somewhere. And you don't belong to God anymore. That's how it happens. And it happens thousands upon thousands of times in the Western church. And God's imploring his church and saying, don't do it. Don't ever, may it never be said of us May it never be said of us, 
I'll sin and then I'll simply ask for forgiveness. These lies have caused many believers to go back on their previous back to their previous sinful ways and obviously include the big sins, but there's one more I want you to note. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot, Jesus said. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. When you're hot, you're passionate for God and you have nothing to worry about. Amen. We've got a bunch of hot people around here. I love it. They're just crazy for God. We, we call them crazy. That's a good nickname to have. They just love them. No problem there. And then you have those who are cold. They're not deceived. They've been, they maybe are the ones who've committed every big sin. Maybe they landed up in four winds and they're now sitting on the front rows. They often are. They've committed every big sin. They know how much they need Jesus. They knew when they were not serving him. It was clear, black and white. Talk to some of them right between the services this weekend. They come to me. Hearts are so sensitive. And then he says, I wish you were one of those those I can work with, he said, but I can't work with those lukewarm ones. And the reason is because they're deceived. They think they've got it together, but there's a veil over them already. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Do you know who Jesus said this to? People in the church. People in the church. You, need, you and I need to wholeheartedly repent of our sins, whether big ones or whether from our lukewarm, smug religiosity, and then wholeheartedly submit to God. This was a message of love. It really was. In fact, folks, if I've ever preached a message of love, this was the one. If ever. Because it was a warning. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save it. That's why he's warning. He's not condemning you. He's inviting you to a life abundant. And love of, the love of God demands warning, just like a loving parent warns his or her children. Some here are in danger of losing the reward. Others are in danger of losing their salvation. So we're going to have a prayer time right now. What I'd like you to do is bow your heads now. Everybody bow your heads. Maybe you came here. Maybe it's your first time in church in a long, long time. You've been away from the Lord for a long time, or maybe you've never known him. You don't know Jesus. You don't have, he's never lived in your life. Then I want us to pray a prayer of commitment all together in which you can pray together with us. And if you've never received Jesus, you can receive him into your heart right now. You need to do that. All right? So I'm going to ask the church to pray after me, as we sometimes do, out loud, because that will assist all of us in praying together. And those of you that have never received Jesus, this is how you do it. This is how you get out of walking in the mess in the direction that you're, you're walking and the judgment you're headed towards. This is how you get out of it, and you turn to Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for you already, so you don't have to. And he gives you the, and he's going to cover your sins. He's going to cancel them. And then he's going to give you the desire and ability, that's his grace, to be able to live differently from now on. That's a deal. 
That's an incredible deal. But he wants you to turn to him, and he wants to become Lord of your life. You haven't done so good with your own life. It's time for you to let him do it. Let's pray this prayer. Dear God, I really understand now, and I want to thank you that this morning, when I least expected it, you warned me about impending danger, about the lies of Satan. You exposed him this morning. And now I realize I was headed for trouble. I was headed for judgment, eternal separation from you. But I am turning to you. I confess my sin. I repent of it. I turn from it. I turn to you. And I receive you as a special gift, one who died for me and took my punishment. And I ask you to be Lord in my life. I give up my ownership, the ownership of my life. And I say, you rule my life from here on in. I give it to you. Thank you for what you've done for me. I gladly give myself to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, this is what I'd like you to do right after the service. I'd like you to come and tell me or go straight out of the double doors and go to the prayer room out there. You'll see a big sign there that says prayer room. It's in kind of light green. And there is a prayer team waiting for you. Now, I want to talk to those of you that are the church, brothers and sisters in Christ church family my fellow friends God is serious about wanting a pure church we can be pure he said well it's too late I've sinned I've done some of these things you've talked about so have I so has everybody here but that's what he saved us from and that's not what we should be known for anymore Amen? That's our past. And now he wants, he wants a clean, holy bride. Amen? Yeah, that's what he wants. In fact, did you know the scripture says, without holiness, no one will see God? Scripture says that. Direct quote. And so what I'd like us to do is bow our head for a moment. And I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to bring areas of, of rebellion in your life areas where you're not submitted to your mind and I want you to begin confessing it so bow your heads close your eyes again Holy Spirit I'm asking you to bring your conviction upon your people and reveal to them areas that are not submitted to you speak to them now Lord As he brings these things to you, you know what to do with it. Confess it as sin. But he's looking for more than confession. He's looking for more than remorse. Oh, I'm so sorry I've done this. Now he's looking for more than that. He's looking for repentance. He wants you to turn from your ways. And he wants to say, you be in charge from now on. 
I've had it with this. I've rebelled against you. I've not submitted to you or your delegated authorities. I've had it. Tell him that. Tell him it right now. Tell him you're turning to him. Tell him that when you leave this building, you're going out different than you came in, and you're going to drive in a different direction when you leave than you came. Tell him that. Lord, you've heard the prayers of your people this morning. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you continue to move and stir and work in us, that we'd become the bride that you're calling forth. In Jesus' name, amen. Just before the worship team comes, let me just say this. If you want somebody to pray with you, and we've had many people in the prayer room in the last couple of weeks, <clears throat> we have a trained team there. They're godly people. They're confidential. They know what they're doing. Good people. It's headed up by Grace Fast. Then as soon as the worship team begins to lead this last song, you, just, you can just slip out of your seats immediately and, and beat the rush and go right through those doors and straight to the prayer room. There will be people waiting for you. They're ready to pray for you and help you through your issues and point you on the right direction. God bless you.